a mysterious epidemic, hitherto unknown, which had struck terror into all hearts by the rapidity of its spread, the ravages it made, and the apparent helplessness of the physicians to cure it. Just what was the 16th century writer referring to? Welcome to the ReachMD Book Club. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, author of You Can Think Like a Psychiatrist, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anya Collier. Dr. Collier is an assistant professor of English at the University of Maryland. She holds degrees in European history, international business, and English education. Welcome to ReachMD, Dr. Collier. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. Uh, Dr. Collier, what are the earliest references that we have to STDs? Well, I think probably the Bible. The Bible tells the soldiers of Israel to execute Midianite women who had sex with Midianite men, feeling that they were contaminated. And Leviticus 14, for instance, advises washing after sex for cleanliness sake and for prevention. So I don't know that we could go much further back than that. So do we know what the ancients knew about STDs? It varies according to who you read and exactly which era and where, but there's definite understanding that it is connected to sex. It's just it mostly seems to be blamed on women, specifically prostitutes. Most references are, you know, have the the expert, the, the doctor or the whatever, somebody, the writer, the chronicler, saying that you know, prostitutes are those who carry these infections. But the descriptions read more like what we would today refer to as a yeast infection, for instance. They don't read as deadly, contagious diseases at all. They don't talk about huge, horrible rashes or anything that you know, we know come of something like syphilis. Now, did things change, though, in the Middle Ages? Well, yeah. In the Middle Ages, we have, for instance, the Normans spoke of Le Chaudpiste, which is hot piss. By the 14th century, there are references to things like perilous infirmity of burning, which is a reference to some kind of genital infection that causes painful urination. But that's about as, as specific as they get, and it really is quite a bit later after the Middle Ages that we, we know anything about made what we would think of today as an STD. Did the church have any impact? Well, yes. The clergymen, as I mentioned in my book, do talk about concoctions that they believe will help against infection. But again, they're not; they don't give fantastic detail that you know would identify it for us today as a, as a modern syphilitic uh, infection or gonorrhea or whatever. They talk mostly about again what sounds really like a yeast-style infection, and then they you know they offer probably mostly useless concoctions to be either applied or, or to things to be consumed to try to get rid of the, the infection. So things really changed in the Renaissance then? Yeah, it's in the late Renaissance when Columbus returns from his great journey and his sailors have this terrible infection. In, in Barcelona, they go to see a doctor who dubs this, this mysterious malady as Indian measles. And then it picks up all kinds of other euphemisms. But what happened was, of course, the sailors went off the ship and back in Europe. They sell their, many of them sell their services as mercenaries to fight both for the French and the Spanish, who were fighting over control of Naples at the time. And the soldiers are on either side, the mercenaries, and they, of course, the first thing they do is go straight to the brothels of the city 
infect the local prostitutes who are serving those signs, and then as those soldiers travel throughout Europe, syphilis is absolutely endemic in Europe by the end of the 15th century. And syphilis is not called that at the time. It's called Bosenblatter and the Polish or the French or the Spanish or the Russian or the Persian pox, depending on you know the assumption of where this horrible contagion has come from. And then we enter into an era of the spread of STDs that essentially never goes away. Is it valid that Columbus really uh, should get the historical blame? Well, this has been a, it's been a debate for years. It's, oh, no, it didn't happen like that. Oh, yes, it did. Oh, no, it didn't. The information that I use came from a variety of sciences, very recent stuff. And they're, they're back saying, clearly, if you follow the historic record, something happened. These are the men who brought this disease with them. As far as the absolute origins of the disease, I don't. I think the jury is absolutely out on that. I don't. I don't know that we'll ever know. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anya Collier. We are discussing the history of STDs, as outlined in her book, The Humble Little Condom. Gabriello Fallopio was the Italian academic known best, of course, for naming the fallopian tubes. And I understand that he wrote a treatise on syphilis. What did he say? Well, in the De Morbo Gallico, which he wrote, and then it was uh, printed a few years after his death, he was really the first one to publicly propose that Instead of when when the syphilis, the syphilis broke out in Europe in the late 15th century, everybody was running around looking for the cure, and he proposed that perhaps the first step was to look for a way to prevent instead. So he thought of himself as the father of the condom, though of course we know it existed long before, but he truly thought he had invented it. And he hired a team of seamstresses to make thousands of the linen style. That was his... his uh, addition to the creation of the modern condom. And he soaked them in a, a, a caustic, chemical-based liquid, too, and let them dry, feeling that that would add secondary protection against disease, which it actually, turns out, was more of a spermicide than anything else. But he followed a thousand men who tested these things out, and he swore up and down and sideways that not one of them contracted syphilis, so clearly this was a way to prevent. And so, though we don't the man doesn't put on a fallopio before having sex. So we've lost poor fallopio. We, he's got his tubes, but he doesn't have the condom. He's not credited. But, yeah, he's definitely the father of the modern, modern condom, and he is the one who basically said, look, if you can't beat them, join them. Look for a way to prevent. He's the first to, to put that message out. Now, what were lock hospitals? Lock is a corruption of the French loc, um, L-O-Q-U-E, which means rags. And the lock hospitals were around in the Middle Ages, and it, they basically started their lives out as leprosarios, where, you know, leprosy, of course, was that sort of catch-all disease in that time where if you had something that looked awful on your skin, you probably had leprosy, and you got tucked away in these horrible... They were more like prisons than hospitals. But by the 18th century, a lot of European countries, specifically France and England, really didn't have a clue what to do with the politics who couldn't be cured, so poor syphilitics were often locked up in the log hospital. Now, England's first dermatologist, Dr. Daniel Turner, had some strong opinions about the condom as well. Oh, did he ever? He hated it. He spent so much time writing 
against the condom. I find him a fascinating man, and he actually had two other doctors of his time who absolutely agreed with him. Jean Astruc, who was Louis XV's personal doctor, and then a German physician named Christoph Girtenar. And they all just thought that the condom was madness, that to say that this little piece of cloth of skin was protection between, you know, the man, they didn't worry about women, protection for a man against such a, a huge and evil disease. They just thought it was absolute madness. But it's interesting because they spent a lot of time when they wrote about how bad this thing was. They talked a lot about the blunting of sensation, is the way they put it. And they absolutely loved the word debauchee. So they're constantly, oh, and the debauchees who think this, this stupid piece of linen is going to protect them. And, oh, what are they mad? And, and they just absolutely spent a lot of their time <laughs> telling people that the condom was bad. But I think Gertoner is my favorite because... He said that German was such a chaste language that the Germans didn't even have a word for, for the condom that he had to borrow from those evil English. He had to borrow the English word for it. <laughs> they were real characters. Now, the whole landscape of STDs changed a bit during the Great War. Well, Woodrow Wilson, though we, we call him a progressive, had a very unprogressive cabinet. And his minister of war, for instance, was his last name, Daniels, I believe, was absolutely adamant that American doughboys would go into go to France armed with moral armor, armor being a reference, an early reference to the condom, one of its many euphemisms, and moral prophylaxis is what he called it. And what happened was that the minute the doughboys hit French soil, there were plenty of brothels and, and prostitutes to be had. And they were infected at a rate that was just unbelievable. And instead of the American military taking responsibility for that and for, for their the soldiers' behaviors and so forth, and supplying them with some kind of physical prophylaxis, they blamed the French brothels. But in fact, it turned out that many, 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 if not the majority of doughboys who had syphilis and were found to have syphilis, actually had gotten it before they had left the United States from the many prostitutes who, you know, swarmed toward any kind of military facility because they knew they had a, a ready market there. But the French were blamed. And try as they might, military leaders who begged the American military to supply their soldiers with some kind of protection, it fell to the individual leader, whereas the European and the Australian and the New Zealand army militaries supplied plenty of condoms to their soldiers who remained almost STD-free during the First World War. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Anya Collier. We are discussing the history of STDs, as outlined in her book, The Humble Little Condom. Did the Americans get smarter in the Second World War? Yes, Second World War, thank goodness. World War One just couldn't repeat itself with over 400,000 cases of gonorrhea and syphilis. That was just insanity. So wise ahead said, look, we can't afford to have this kind of fallout and this many men sick during a war. So condoms, condoms everywhere, <laughs> including posters and lectures and demonstrations with the old broom handle between the legs. This is how you put one on kind of thing. And they got a lot smarter about it and, and very, very, were very, very visual what soldiers dubbed Susie Rotten Crotch films, 
were available at every base, at all training facilities, and the men had to sit through the information. You couldn't have been a soldier or a sailor in World War II and not have known how to use the condom. Susie Rottencrotch? Well, again, women were always blamed all the way up into, you know, modern times. When, oh, it's women who carry the disease. There's never any thought to, you know, that the men might be helping us, helping us along a bit. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. You're welcome. We've been discussing historical aspects of STDs with Dr. Anya Collier. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the ReachMD Book Club on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments, so please visit us at ReachMD.com. Our new on-demand and podcast features will allow you to access our entire program library. Thank you for listening. 